Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. We should start by apologizing for a technical difficulty we had last week where James's voice was softer than mine because a small child had changed the setting on the uh, microphone. Yeah. We think. We think that. Child, said child was not caught in the act, so. They like to come into my office and mess with things. Play so. with, well, I mean, yeah. it's full of toys. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. 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 So many toys. Yeah. Um, they're favorite is the rockets because i've got all the rockets in my office so yeah i like to play with those and it's not fair that daddy should have all the toys that's right so uh this week we're going to struggle with a the topic of um culture and culture clashes and uh issues like that i've been rereading uh, there's this book called Peopleware by Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister, and it's in its third edition, which I haven't yet, well, I'm in the process of reading. And uh, with my study of organizations and things that I think I spent, I don't know, 10 years doing, uh, I started wondering whether maybe I had missed something and that there were some organizations that if I had just looked hard enough, I could have found really awesome organizations to work for. And uh, so encountering this is uh, a little disheartening. It's really about um, or what I'm thinking about now is like, well, you could be working in a great organization it could be great in a lot of ways. And then there's a culture clash between programmers. Mm. There are programmers who value, um, I guess you could say, the, the science of programming. And then there are other programmers who are much more, I guess, short-term pragmatic. And like a really simple example is uh, magic numbers in your code. So um, that's one of the first things, even in assembly language, we try not to use mag magic numbers. We want to name them so that when somebody else is coming along reading, they all understand that, oh, this is a length and this is a width or, you know, something like that. It's not just some random number. How do you, if you want to change it, how do you know where to change it and where to leave it alone? If it's a magic number, it's like basic. Huh. And yet sometimes you find programmers who go, I, I guess it's the, it works for me strategy. Mm -hmm. I got the code working. It's yeah. doing the thing. Why are you being so difficult or, you know, vars and vowels. It's yeah. like, really, does it make that big of a difference? You know, yeah. if something isn't this invariance thing just seems very nitpicky. And, <laughs> and you're talking about I, uh... stuff that might happen. Like if you, or if you're in a concurrent environment or something, it's like, well, we're not doing this concurrently. I'll just put, I, I'm comfortable with VARES. I'll just do that. Yeah. And it's working. So what is your problem? Right. And it can go on and on like that. Oh, well, what I was talking about the other week uh, about um, override. It's like Java doesn't complain if you don't put at override in. Right. So, and, and I think some of this, I've seen this happen where they go, well, the compiler is happy with it. The one tool that my test pass. Well, 
is that person writing tests though? If the one, the one who says the compiler says it's okay. I've seen that a lot. Well, a lot of times in Scala, I don't write tests because the compiler gives me sufficient coverage to be confident That's in the, different. my code. That's different. But I mean, you still, you know, at some level you're testing it. You're not just going, oh, the, you know, it says you're, you're still wanting to know, well, if I put this in, am I getting the expected output? You're, you're testing at some level. You just don't have to test at that yeah. level of granularity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, uh, as an example of what you're talking about with like vowels and bars, I'm working on some Kotlin code with somebody else this week and uh, they made some changes and I think they didn't send a pull request. I didn't have to like approve the change that we were just, you know, both committing to, to the main branch. And, uh, and so I went back into the code and I saw that some of my vowels had been turned into vars uh, and for, you know, they needed to modify uh some value in a, in a, a data class. And, uh, and so I was working on something different, but I'm like, I cannot make my commit until I change those bars back to vowels. And then I had to like spend an hour learning about how to create custom Jackson, Jason deserializer so that I could do it at the right time. So like what was happening was we were deserializing this JSON thing, but then we needed to change one of the the values that had been deserialized. And so, so, you know, the, the easy, the, the happy path was to just make it a var instead of a vowel so that you could just, you know, overwrite it with the, with the modified value. And I was like, oh, I, I just cannot like move, beyond that. I cannot commit my change until I've changed this back to vowels. But then I had to actually write a custom deserializer so that at deserialization time we could deserialize it into the form that we needed it in. But for me, like I'm like, I I just cannot move forward until that is until that's better. I found it's kind of a game. It's like, I don't know, you're playing chess or something and you yeah. see a ver and you go, uh, there's gotta be a way to do this. Yeah. And you can go down a rabbit hole. So in that code, like, like, does it work as a var? Yes. Am I like, am I likely to run into any issues because it's a var? Probably not in this case. And so like, I should have been able to be okay with it as a var, mm -hmm. but it just like, I just can't, you know, and you've become like, obsessive. I've become obsessive about immutability, immutability for sure. Um, unapologetically uh, obsessive, <laughs> but at the same time, there have been times when, you know, months down the road, I come back to this code and it's not working the way I expect it to be. And like mutability is one of those things where, where in the long run, I think it usually is worth it to, to just do it the immutable way, even though there may be a little bit more work up front. But the key phrase in there was in the long run. Yeah. And so if you're just short-term thinking, and I think this is where the, the divide or at least part of the divide happens is it's like short-term versus long-term thinking. And myself, even if I'm building a tool that is, <laughs> is something, you know, that I'm only going to use myself. And in this situation, I don't know, I still find, I think it's because 
I'm probably going to come back to this and maybe copy and paste from it, maybe adapt it or something like that. And so even in that case, I find it's better to write it better. Yeah. But the problem, you know, I mean, this cultural divide is that if you're still like going, I I don't see the point of this. Yeah. I mean, in before I was really bought into immutability as an example, I, I didn't see the value in immutability, but now that I have built so many things now, I actually very often, if I'm dealing with something mutable, I feel the pain of that. And I think I wasn't aware of that pain until I'd lived in the immutable world for a while. Or like, you know, handling nulls or anything yeah. like that. I mean, I think yeah. it's like, well, it throws a null pointer exception and then we go fix the code. It's like the this is water thing with a lot of that is mm-hmm. that you're just not, until you experience something dif- differently and become aware of the water that you're swimming in. Right. And I've spent a lot. You're like, this is fine. I've spent a lot of time struggling with concurrency before even, you know, looking at issues of invariance and, you know, things just didn't, you know, it didn't occur. Well, I mean, it sort of occurred to me, but it was just, well, we put locks and, and, you know, we have, that's how we do it. That's how we do it. Because, yeah. because everything's a bear. We don't have a choice. I mean, in Java, everything's a bear. So you have to use locks. Um, Unless it's final, but. <laughs> yeah, how often. It, it's, well, and then, and then understanding that, oh, your code, even though you don't plan to use it in a concurrent environment, somebody else might use your library in a concurrent environment. So you have to, it's like, oh man, that means everybody who creates libraries ever has to know about concurrency. That's not a practical thing. I mean, it's too hard to. uh, So I think back to cultural stuff. I've lived in a culture for probably the last five years or so that, that significantly values immutability. And when I was working on this project this week with somebody they don't live in that community. They mm. haven't. And so their culture is not that. And so I, the, this was fine. I was able to very easily make a change, but you could see in larger ways on teams or whatever, the cultural conflicts that can come up because of the, 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 the undercurrent of water that we're unaware of the things we value and, and even the unstated things that we value, I think is probably where a lot of the tension comes from is that, um, in corporate culture and team culture, whatever, there's lots of values that are that are not explicitly expressed. Right. And what if, I mean, maybe everybody on your team is like, oh yeah, we totally get it. And then the team manager's going, you know, I don't, I don't see the point. They haven't gone through the learning curve that would make them say that. And then if, if they go, if the team manager goes, well, I'm not going to do that. And I don't expect anybody else to do it too. Then you don't have this consistency. Uh, one of the best descriptions, well, whether it's truly accurate, but one of the best descriptions that I heard of culture is culture is everything we punish and reward. Hmm. 
And it just, so it's a, it's a kind of a external thing. And so if somebody were to say, oh, you know, our culture says we don't use magic numbers and everybody rigorously adheres to that, then you don't, you know, you learn not to use magic numbers, even if at first you don't agree with it or whatever, you just go, oh, well, our culture says that we don't do that or or that we're going to say at override in our Java code. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you don't have the context of a, of a programming team where you see those things is in code reviews, because you'll have people kind of punishing somebody for the code they wrote. And so it's in some ways an expression of, of the culture. Mm-hmm. Like how do they do the punishing? What do they just change it, fix it, make comments? Uh, most of the time it is just, I think kind of what I've seen on a lot of teams is it's kind of aggressively like that's wrong. Don't do it that way. Or, you know, it's it, I, I don't think it's a very, I'm, I'm very disappointed with our programming community and how we do code reviews. Mm. Um, generally, I th- I'm sure that there are some teams that, that do it well, but, but I think that a lot of it in code reviews that I've seen is really just that punishment reward type of expression. And a lot of it is about superficial stuff. It's mm. like, Oh, you need four spaces there instead of two or whatever. And Which a that tool kind of, should that do. kind of stuff just automated through a tool. Yeah. But um but it is interesting, I think, one way that we see culture expressed a lot in programming is through code reviews. Yeah. Or lack there. Lack there of see, because I think at least the last time I looked, you know, most companies didn't do code reviews. And maybe it's now more common with Git, you know. Yeah. Uh then yeah, the pull request is think opened up code reviews to mm-hmm. more people. Yeah. It's um so pull requests have a great way which I use all the time now and most people I know don't use this which is unfortunate but there's a way in GitHub with a pull request instead of just commenting on something that needs to change you can provide a suggestion for how to change it hmm. right in line right in the UI and then um depending on if so if I what happens sometimes is I send a pull request somebody comments on something which really should have just been a suggestion and then I could go in and click accept suggestion and it would change it and they actually get the the credit and the git commit mm. history for that change like it's it's pretty cool how this works but so what happens a lot of times is somebody will provide a comment on a on something not a suggestion. And then I go in GitHub and provide the suggestion. And then I automatically accept my own suggestion. So it's just a super easy way. But I'm like, the person really should have just, instead of writing the words, just made the suggestion for the change. Oh, yeah, that sounds much better. Yeah. Um, it's, it's and the, so the suggestion is an actual change to code, which should compile. Yep. Okay. Well, and, and you and should then you can just click GitHub on it and say, that then validate that okay. change as well, the automatically mm-hmm. GitHub actions or whatever. Is this system. always been there or is this a newer Suggestions thing? Suggestions are new in like the last year. Or so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is pretty And important. it's a little bit hidden in the UI. Like mm-hmm. you actually have to click this tiny little button in the comment box to provide the suggestion. Mm-hmm. And for some things that that functionality doesn't work, like if it's 
like sometimes you want to change, you need to like change kind of like something and then leave some other stuff the same and then change something else. Like you want like kind of a big multi-line suggestion. And so for some cases, the suggestion functionality is not really sufficient. But what I do in those cases is I'll actually fork the person. So if I'm reviewing somebody else's pull request, I'll fork their branch. I will then make the changes, the larger changes that I want them to change. And then I'll send a pull request to their pull request. So Mm -hmm. it's, or send a pull request to their branch. And so, um, so it's for, for larger suggested changes. That's what I do. But for small stuff, the suggestion feature and pull request is awesome. That sounds like an important step forward. Yeah. I mean, GitHub has done such a good job at creating better collaboration and communication, but it is interesting how all of that is kind of uh, an expression of culture. Um, Like maybe one of the best ways you can understand the culture of a project is to look at the code reviews that happen. (laughs) Well, yes. And are they like what you said before? It's like, oh, well, that's just wrong versus, okay, let me explain to you why we're trying to do it this way. So an educational approach rather than simply uh, pejorative. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another issue, which is like, does the person, is the person open to improving that the way that they code or are they, you know, kind of digging into, well, no, I've, I've been programming for a long time in what say, for example, somebody's coming from Java to another language and they end up like programming in Java in this other language. And are they, are they open or interested in improving the way they're doing things Yeah. versus are they just going to, are, are you going to trigger the backfire effect, which is a cognitive bias that says, if you yeah. point out the, somebody's flaws, they're going <laughs> to dig in harder and, yeah. you know, go, go further into those things. Yeah. Like, I'm sure I've done both, but I remember when I was moving from Java to Scala and working at TypeSafe, uh, Havoc Pennington and Josh Surratt both were doing a lot of code reviews on my Scala. And I learned so much from them because I didn't really understand monadic thinking. And I, there, I was learning so much at the time and the code reviews were incredibly helpful for me to understand how to write Scala. Um, but they must have known somehow that those were really helpful because otherwise oh, why would they keep those, doing them? Both of those guys are just amazing teachers, yeah. just patient and mm-hmm. kind and yeah, really help. help but if you had dug along. in and said, I, you know, I don't want to do it that way or whatever, they would have probably stopped giving you feedback. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And I guess it, uh, I, I must have decided that Java was um, not the best way to do things. Not the best model for programming. <laughs> not the best model for programming. And uh, and so uh, so I was open to... You're already there. Yeah. So what I do can you... see on the team. Yeah. That may not be the case for everyone on the team. And are those people reachable? 
mm-hmm. if they've, you know, if they go, ah, you know, jo- the Java way is, Good enough. it's what I learned and I feel comfortable with it and I really don't want to change. I mean, they're not necessarily explicitly going to say that. Yeah. They're well, just, they mean not. They're, they're probably not bad programmers. They just maybe aren't convinced that, that, that there's a better way or that the better way is worth it. Or that programming is constant learning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if everyone that programs believes that. Oh no. I think, I think most people who program don't, you know, it's the the problem is it's not the people we interact with. Mm. We don't, you know, we interact with the people who are self-selected to going, yeah, this is awesome. I want to just keep, you know, learning more stuff as I go. And the people who say, well, these are the books that I got in college and, uh, you know, I, I know how to program now and I don't hmm. need to learn anything new. They don't what? appear. Yeah. They don't appear at your developer, you know, yeah. marketing events <laughs> and they don't show up to conferences. Actually, they, uh, oh, sometimes with, with, with online stuff, I actually meet, I think a lot of people. In that That's book. true. Cause um, the, Bar- barrier to entry is really low. I yeah. gave oh this is many years ago, and I think it was like a cell phone. It was a cell phone company that was big at the time, and I think has since Gone. collapsed. Um, but they had me come in and give a presentation, and it was in the theater, the company's theater. And I realized that oh, there are people here who I don't usually see hmm. because they could just wander down from their cubicle in their socks. Yeah. And, and the kind of feedback I'm getting is very different and it's very not interested in expanding ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe for some reason people in school that have gone through school to learn how to program sometimes can come away with the perspective that they've reached the end when they get to the end of school. And it'd be nice if school told them, no, this is a lifelong journey that you will go on. (laughs) That doesn't end when you graduate. Yeah. I think part of that problem is the self-selection process of the college professors. You know, they don't, a lot of them, like they don't teach get here and it's not frightening well it is and the thing is it's a very computer sciencey kind of thing because if you look at it from the from the abstract thing it's like well how do we how do we take all of these people and get them to work together and if you just look at the way that it works you go wow this is really interesting and a different way of thinking about collaboration this is you know the distributed version control implementation is not the important thing. It's right. the, it's the kind of the theory behind it. So yeah. it should be an essential part of it, but born, born out of actual, like, like how developers were, were doing things and what they needed, which is like one of the most important reasons why Git was successful. It's like solves a real problem. A bunch of people need to work together on something. Mm-hmm. Well, and they were using a proprietary, uh, the Linux kernel was using a proprietary distributed version control before Linus created Git. Yeah, I forget what it was, but it was... I don't even remember the name of it. I think they had to, I think they were charging for it. And yeah, there was all this, uh, there were all these problems. It 
So I wonder how many universities are, because because when Java came in and it got all the push and everything, there was a bunch of universities that go, oh, finally we can just teach one language, and we don't have to worry about you know all these other languages. We'll just focus on this one language, and they just started teaching Java, and so there's a bunch of people who went through universities and Java is the only language they know, yeah. and so they have this very narrow perspective on this i mean it's kind of a weird language if you so there was a conversation i was having on twitter which was around um it was basically the age-old question of what language should you start people with who are Mm -hmm. you know new to programming in university whatever and the options provided were java javascript like c and c plus plus or something like that and i was like Kotlin or Scala, because you look at those other languages and I, so I actually listed out the reasons why Kotlin or Scala were much better options. Uh, but I actually taken some from your, uh, equality is equality in JavaScript is just nuts. Just like, like so bizarre. Uh, and then you'd pointed out in your blog post, how, how in, Java, it's not as bad as JavaScript, but it's pretty weird. Like primitives, like you should never have to teach a new person new to programming prim- primitives versus objects. Like that just is is right. And now, I'm and I'm still I'm still trying to sort this out because somebody posted a comment on it and they said they said no, the reason that uh, you know, new integer is deprecated is not performance. Unlike the previous poster who was quite authoritative when he said it, this one actually sounds more authoritative than that one. And now I'm going to have to go back in and go, all right, then what is it? Because I'm confused, but, but presenting this to people, Oh, Java is simple. You just say new object. Anytime you need an object, except with numbers. And then even with the numbers, now you don't say, new integer you're supposed to say integer value of or use anyway it's like (sighs) remember the funny thing that we were working on the scala three book Mm -hmm. on uh tuesday night Mm -hmm. and we did uh in scala we did string plus double and and it works but then you flip it to like double plus string and it didn't it didn't work or it was deprecated right so you flip the order and, and it was, it was different. And then we were trying to figure out why, why can we do string plus anything? And underneath the covers, it was a method on Java string, right? The, Java. The, yeah. It, so in Java operator overloading is bad because it's hard in C plus plus. So it's not in Java except where we need it. Like it really is important to have it with string. So we'll overload the operator in the string, but we, won't let you overload operators because, and then of course the irony is the reason it's hard in C++ is that they don't have a garbage collector. (laughs) If you have a garbage collector and everything is an object except for primitives, then it's much easier to overload operators. Like, you know, Python's always done that. And, you know, it's like easy with a garbage collector. Um, uh, Yeah. It's such a, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the thing. I think, it's hard to prove these things. Yeah. And so we get opinions. Yeah. 
and we get, oh, I don't want to do it that way. Or we form a culture. We form a culture not based on, you know, verifiable results, but a lot of it's just opinions. And so been formed based on experience and yeah, based on experience. But I mean, it's like even because Kotlin maintained the do while thing. It's like, when's the last time you did a do while? Why, why, why do we still have this thing? Toss it out. We should. should And yeah, I'm, I mean, and, and I think for loops should be gone too. Well, now you're getting draconian (laughs) sometimes. No, I, I, I get it. I I totally get it. I mean, I, I certainly tried to do that with the Java eight book. It's like try and eliminate all the for loops and use, streams everywhere but then some people have pointed out oh sometimes streams are inefficient and <laughs> uh, yeah when you when you don't design the essentials in from the ground up yeah. you are gonna end up with this thing and what's your quote about culture that you told me earlier uh everything we punish and reward no, oh no, no. Uh, I, I you know it was like cult- culture is what happens when you're not paying attention or doing something else or whatever. Yeah. I, Cause I've visited companies when, especially when I was writing about culture, trying to figure out, you know, what is it, how does it happen and everything. And it definitely seems to happen outside of your control. It's, I mean, essentially you're in control. You hire people, they hire people and you're all hiring people that fit whatever your unconscious thought of what a good programmer mm. is going to be or, or whatever. So you, so the along culture, with the terrible system to validate that fit along with the terrible system <laughs> to validate that fit. And, and, but a lot of it is just, Oh, you look like my kind of person. So I want to, I mean, this is a person I'm going to work with. So I want to hire my kind of person and they end up doing that. And, and of course, at the same time, hiring only the best 10% of programmers, okay. like everybody does. Like everybody. Everybody does that. So, um, and so you're unconsciously creating culture there. And then suddenly. Just in the candidate uh, selection process. Yes. Like, yeah. And even that's unconscious. It's yeah. not the tests that you're doing or everything. And so you Back end to up. our illusion of control episode, we right. sure like to imagine that we are controlling it. Well, and. Um, the you know management hierarchy is incentivized you know that's their job is to be in control of everything so they really you know if you come to them and say well you can't control something here then for example um uh, attrition um productivity well if i sell you that you can't control that and you go but it's my job to control things well, we can't really measure those things very well, so let's just ignore them. Well, they don't consciously say let's ignore them, yeah. but they go, uh, you can't manage what you can't measure. That's another one of those business school maxims yeah. that they are so fond of churning out. That's interesting how that statement allows them to ignore the things that they can't control. But that's not what they're, they don't even think that. They just go, oh, you know, well, you can't measure what you can't manage, or you can't manage what you can't measure. And so it's sort of an unconscious thing of saying, well, we can't measure that. So hmm. what's the point? 
You know, it's not that, well, maybe we should see, maybe there's something we can measure. Let's experiment. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's another way. Yeah. But that's not how that command and control thinking goes. This is the way. Yeah. And it's a, it's an, you know, I'm trying to adjust my thinking because first for a long time, I always just get mad about these things. It's just like, oh, those guys are doing it wrong, you know? And then if you adjust, and there's a lot of this comes from nonviolent communication. It's like, okay, everybody's doing the best with what they have and, you know, try and put yourself in their position and go, oh, here are the forces that are acting upon them. Here are, mm. here's the teaching that they had unconsciously growing up. So we have these incentives set up and they're following those incentives and that's what happens. And so realizing that uh, we need to make this basically cultural change because those incentives are what we're, you know, rewarding and punishing. Yeah. Those are, yeah. And it's a lot of this is, is coming from rereading this book, people wear and just being reminded of all the, all the things that are built into this patriarchal system mm. that create the result, which is totally logical. Once you look at it, you go, Oh, this is how these things are set up. So this is the result that we keep getting. We're not in control of things and we're, cause we're not paying attention to the stuff that, is really important. Mm-hmm. You look at productivity, somebody goes, well, I can't control that, but I can control how big your cubicle is. And there we can measure. Yeah. We can see, oh, the office space costs are reduced by cramming people into smaller cubicles. <laughs> Don't really look at the longer term effects on productivity, on employee turnover. Right. You know, it's like, I don't, it's like, you know, if I were looking for a job, in an organization, I'm going to look at how are things set up. When I visited Zappos, they were big on um, allowing people to kind of reorganize their spaces mm. so that so that it could make them happiest. And that's what Peoplewear says to do because different teams have different ways of interacting. Huh. And so you want to have that. It's, it's somebody's job to figure out how to structure the cubicles. We have... Yeah, we've <laughs> we've we've got everybody's got to have their specialty, yeah. and we got to trust the specialty. You know, this is the downside of meritocracy: is this belief that because somebody has somehow scored well on this particular thing, that they are now the expert, and they're the only one that knows the answer. Mm. <sighs> it's uh, yeah, I want the world to be better. Yes, and so yes. when I have to learn why it isn't, it's a process. You know, I realized that you can't, you have to see the world the way it is if you have, want to have even a hope of changing it. Yeah. And, but seeing the world the way it is, is actually a really hard process because I've got all these illusions and delusions in my head and I have to break them down and go, oh yeah, there is institutionalized racism, for example. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's super, oh my God, that's sad. You know, I mean, like when you really look at it to understand it, it yeah. is it is deeply sad. And I, I would prefer to 
do what I've done most of my life and gone, it's probably not that bad. I don't want to think about it. And then when you really start experiencing what it might be like to be one of those people. Yeah. It's effing hard, man. Yeah. It's like, Oof. yeah. in the world for what it actually is. But you can't change it. You know, I mean, you can't start doing something about that thing until you really have a feeling of what it might be like. And, and the loss of talent and ability that comes from, yeah. from that kind of thing is. <sighs> yeah. And, and for, uh, and then you go back around and you know, people, people going, Oh yeah, we're hiring the best people and we're being focusing on productivity and all that. And then doing things that fly directly in the face of that. Yeah. And then, but those people are doing the best that they can with what they have. Yeah. Well, and the optimistic view of it is that I think the only option is progress and things actually getting better. Like it probably, like we talked about in the last episode, well, happens a lot slower than we would certainly like, um, but it does get better. It does. Yeah. Once you see it, you go, oh, well, clearly we need to change this right now. And that's the other thing that's, is understanding the inertia and the issues that everybody has. You have to live in that tension of like, I want this to be better. It can be better. I see how it can be better. And yet there's this giant boat anchor that we have to like tug along for a long time and, and that maybe slowly loses its grip. Well, because there's a whole lot of people who have to go through the same experience. Yeah that you did to get where you are. Yeah. And that's a slow, so saying, yep, this might not change in my lifetime. This might not change in, I mean, things are moving faster now. I think that's yeah. one of the things about being part of the computer field is that we're used to going, oh, we'll just wait a year and the new processor will come out and it'll do things faster or we'll have yeah. more cores or whatever it is. And, you know. Yeah, I mean, certainly not as, heavy and important, but back to the immutability thing, mm -hmm. if I could wave my magic wand, like every programmer would be like, Oh, immutability. Of course, of course it's a better way. But I think that, that I have to let go of that expectation that, cause everyone is on their own journey to that. I think most people will eventually get there, but you're right. It may take beyond my lifetime for most programmers to, I mean, there's still, people who don't think magic numbers are fine. So yeah. I don't, I mean, maybe it's just tooling. Maybe it's just because if people do respond to tooling, I mean, even if they're only using the compiler and that's the only thing that they go, well, I absolutely have to do what the compiler tells me to. I don't care about all these, you know, style checkers and formatters and stuff, but the compiler says this. So that's the line. I mean, that was my first experience was I remember the first time I found a compiler bug. I was in grad school at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. We had to, I would get up really early in the morning to not have to wait in line to get a terminal, et cetera. And I remember I came across this thing and I'm going, wait a minute, I wrote this code. The output should be this, but it's not. And I showed it to somebody who was, you know, running the machine and he goes, Oh, it's probably a compiler bug. And I'm going, 
what? It's the language. It can't be wrong. That's not a possibility. And it was, it was a shock to me. And, you know, that was my tool. That was my one tool was the language. And I think there's a lot of people who are like that. And so if you start putting on arbitrary, uh, what seem like arbitrary constraints on top of the language, going, well, language doesn't tell me to do this, so it's not real. Yeah. And I know it's it's a primitive mindset, but hmm. it took us a long time to get where we are. So we have to be compassionate oh, that's right. to that. The compassionate. That's a good way to put yeah. it. Is. Yeah. So uh, you had uh, something you were you had created a page of oh of <laughs> you of your my of your developer cr- marketing cranky tweets my cranky snarky tr- tweets tr- cranky tweets from James yeah so I I over the last couple of years I have uh, started on Twitter to share my my um, what I call developer marketing pro tips which are basically just snarky ways to to tell people how they're doing developer marketing wrong. Um, cause I want it to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been in developer marketing for 15 years now. And so, um, so I have definitely formed some opinions about how it can be better. And for those that maybe aren't aware of developer marketing, it's marketing to developers. So if you're a technology company and you have something that you want developers to use, there is often a, a part of a team in the organization that is that's job is to um, to market that technology to developers. Right, and I was confused when you told me this because if you say developer testing, that means developers doing testing, and that's so right. this is not developers doing marketing. This is people like James going, "Hey, I got this cool technology you might be interested in." Yeah. Ideally, that's the way you present it. Not your company will crash and burn unless you use our technology yeah yeah i mean there, there are different techniques and different styles um jboss was was very uh successful on doing the type of marketing oh and actually a better example is uh spring rod johnson mm-hmm. who i uh, think is a wonderful guy but his approach to developer marketing was to was to bash on um EJBs, J2E, all that kind of stuff. So it was much more of a which admittedly uh, is eminently bashable. Yeah, has yeah. has cost the world billions of dollars because it was poorly designed, but by committee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so one of my tweets is uh, my developer marketing how to step one: build something developers really want. And you told me that's basically the definition of true marketing. Right. right? Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of people, because of the incentives, believe that marketing means sales. Right. Just sell the thing. Um, What marketing actually means is figuring out what the customer actually wants. And that sounds, you know, when you hear that, that sounds very different from just trying to push whatever we have onto the customer. Right. And so anyway, figure out what the customer wants. Step two, make it easy to learn and use. Sounds hard. Right? Okay. And that's it. That's my developer marketing how-to. But uh, if the adoption is not what you hoped for, spend more time on step one. (laughs) 
Or step two. Well, I think start with step one. Well, definitely start with step one. It's an iterative cycle. Yeah, it is. It's like, right. But, but what you're talking about is hard and not measurable. And, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So, um, so maybe we should just try and sell it, sell what we have. You know, one thing that I've seen that marketing organizations are always really good at Mm -hmm is conveying to their management how great of a job they're doing. I've never seen a marketing organization that's bad at marketing themselves to their management. Uh, this is a, Sometimes that's all they're good at. My friend Daniel and I have said this for decades, is that marketers seem to be best at marketing themselves. And it's like, well, and they get paid when they do that. So why do they need to do anything more than that? I mean, it's, it's very much like um, business schools and business consulting firms. They usually sell their model. And if the model doesn't work for you, it's because you're not using it right. (laughs) Which actually kind of is true in the agile world. You know, I mean, it's like we want to do agile as long as it's not threatening. Yeah. And so we don't really know if agile works or not. Yeah. Because people just go out oh, with this piece sounds cool. Well, let's do that and say we're agile. Box checked. Yeah. So what's another one? Um, okay. Another one. Developer marketing pro tip number 327. Uh, almost no one wants to switch app hosting infrastructure, programming language, Database, CI system, application architecture, CSS library version. God, don't ever try to switch your CSS library version. It's never fun. Uh, App framework, DNS provider, cloud, build tool, shell, editor, or your own teeth. Like this is like, this is like most of us do not like to switch our own teeth out of our mouth. It's not fun. And so they try and avoid it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the same is true for basically all technology. I think maybe this was, spurred out of our discussion last week about how hard adoption is because people that are doing something some way usually do not want to switch. Well, you have to look at, it's an unknown. The benefits are unknown. There's like some developer marketing guy is trying to convince Convince me that this is good. And it's like, I don't know if that's true or not. I've heard others who've made these claims and now their product doesn't exist anymore because it turned out not to be true. So I don't know if that's true. I don't know. How much is it going to help my company to do this? And like you're saying, well, you should go through and make everything uh, immutable. And it's like, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of refactoring right there. And I don't even know if our tests are going to cover that refactoring. And then when we're done, it's the, everything's going to work the same as it did before. I mean, that's the definition of refactoring. And what have I got out of this? Well, look, I mean, if you're doing concurrency over here, it might not break. It's like, well, it doesn't seem to be broken broken now. now. Why should I do all this? And that's not an, I mean, my metric is that if you're going to change tools, you should get like a 10 times 
improvement. So it's like over what somehow it's overwhelmingly clear yeah. that we're going to, it's like, how are you, you know, you're storing your code in files now. Um, if you move to Git, you're going to have all these benefits. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you know, your code will be better. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be a lot more controllable. There's that word control yeah. again. Uh, all these things. And it's like, yeah, that's a clear win. Should not yeah. be uh, a question there. Yeah. Um, but making everything immutable or adding uh, overrides it catches a few things, but the code's working now. It seems like it's working now anyway. How are you going to sell me on this thing? Yeah, I mean, developer marketing seems to have this position that everyone's kind of just wandering around looking for a new database to switch to. <laughs> that seems to be the default position of most developer marketing or whatever the technology may be. But I think most people are not wandering around looking for looking to switch anything. No, until the database until the database you have starts failing. You're, Until you can get a 10x improvement over where you are. Right. And an improvement that you actually need. Yeah. You know, so my database is running fast enough. You know, it, ha it hasn't any troubles. Oh, well, my database runs 10 times faster. I don't really care. It's yeah. not, that's not. And if you're coming to try and sell me that, yeah. then I'm going to be even more suspicious because <laughs> you have, you have a stake in whether I do it or not. Whereas what you're trying to do is say, hey, maybe for your next project, this might be easier, better to use. Yeah. You're, you're not trying to, I think the immediacy is important because mm -hmm. if you're, if you're saying, oh man, you got to change to our thing right now or else your company's going <laughs> to die. Uh, that doesn't, I mean, it's like, it's not dying now. Yeah. I'm not seeing any evidence of that. Yeah. Why do I need to change to your thing? You're, you're trying to sell me. Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't I like be being sold. sold. Yeah. I, I want to talk about interesting possibilities, but yeah. this urgency factor is mm. not, that doesn't not ring well for me. So yeah. you have more. Um, yeah. Got more. Well, you have on jamesward.com, but, um, this one was interesting. So I watched uh, a the the developer keynote from the Kafka Summit, mm -hmm. and uh, for um, for people who don't know what the Kafka Summit is, it's uh, so Kafka, the Apache Kafka. Um, it's a, uh, <laughs> a message bus type of technology, okay. uh, open source message bus technology, okay. and so there was this keynote from Gwen uh, Shapira who is just an amazing person and one of my favorite people to, to follow on, on Twitter. Um, she works on, on Kafka for, at Confluent and she did this, this keynote that was just so like right on, like exactly what I think a good developer keynote is. It was, she shared her vision. She had passion. She was authentic. Uh, and I've seen so many developer keynotes, uh, developer conference keynotes that are not at all that. And, uh, and so I thought that was a good example. Just, yeah. So you're saying you want, you, if you're going to do a developer conference keynote, it's got to be authentic. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key. Yeah. And as part of that, it needs to have vision and, and, um, needs to, to be 
practical. I think that Gwen's um, keynote was a good job of of making the what she was talking about practical as well. And one of the but Python conferences, I think, in the early to mid two thousands. Uh, whoever the organizers were like going, yeah, we got to raise money or we got to do this. And, and they sold like keynote spots yeah. and it was just so obviously somebody going up there going, of course you want our product. Let's describe how, you know, it was just, it was a sales job and it was yeah. like, Oh my God, the reaction. I mean, my reaction was just, Oh, what is this? I'm leaving the room now because this is a waste of my time. Yeah, and I think everybody had that. That that hasn't repeated itself. I've it, been in conferences where, where it turns into like a vendor pitch, a yes. developer conference, and and every single time, if it's if people are caught off guard by it, like like it was marketed, the session was marketed as not being a vendor pitch, but then it turns into one. So many people get up and leave. Oh yeah, because. Yeah, yeah, this is not what I signed up for. Yeah. This is not what I paid to come for. Yeah, to to have I'm yeah. paying for ads. Yeah. I paid to not have ads. Uh, here we'll we'll do this one last, um, and then wrap up on this subject. But um, the okay, uh, this was a dear developer marketing. The kinds of developers you most want to reach do not fill out your service. Because one of the ways that developer marketing likes to have the illusion of control around things is to do surveys, and the sur- they think the surveys are you know the the steering guiding light for them. It's Yay, fe- we have data, we can measure it. It's feedback. Yeah. It's, you know. And when was the last time you took a developer survey that wasn't like Stack Overflow? Just or, this um, last week, I was uh, offered the JetBrains one. There's the Stack Overflow ones, which which I think a lot of developers do though, because they're not they're not by marketing organizations. Mm. But anyway, so yeah, um, in the past week, I was offered uh, an amount of a, like an insultingly small amount of money to do a task, and then the first thing was to fill out some forms. I, I'm I wasn't going to do any of this, and even when I said no, then the person came back and said, oh, well, would you be willing to fill out our form? And I said, no, thank you. I mean, I was already annoyed at being offered an insultingly small amount of money to do a, a bunch of work for them. Yeah. And their their attitude was, we're offering you money to do a thing. You should love this. And, oh, you know, the whole thing set me off. Yeah, I don't, I don't fill out surveys when I guess if they make them small enough, you know, it's like, were you happy? Were you not happy? It's like, okay, I can do that. And we tried to do this with various conferences. And um, I think when I was helping session rating systems, session rating systems, when I was trying to run the, uh, when I was part of the software development conference, which nobody knows about because it's been gone for a few years because they based all of their income on trade show floor space Mm -hmm. and the internet killed that and they couldn't let go of it. Mm -hmm. And so they died anyway. Um, we were trying to figure out ways to get some kind of feedback. And so, you know, naturally the marketing people slash salespeople were going, Oh, let's get, let's get all this data from the survey. Nobody would fill it out. But finally somebody came up with the idea of you just pick up a red card or a green card and you just drop it in. And it's like, it's Mm. the threshold is low enough that somebody was going, yeah, that sucked. I'm going to put a red card in. Yeah. That was okay. I'll put a green card in. Yeah. I think even those I may have resisted doing just because I'm 
kind of contrarian about. I, I guess I know where it's coming from. It's somebody trying to control the process rather than genuinely looking mm. for feedback. Mm. And when I feel that that's the case, then I'm going to push back. Yeah. 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 Mm. It's, it doesn't feel authentic to me. That's right. I, yeah. I guess that word is getting a lot of play lately and is probably getting morphed into something else. It's, it's a woke term now or something. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a real, you know, it's like, it's too bad if that's what's happening. funny though, is that developer marketing, I think they are on the, let's be authentic kick. Some of them, but they think that they can ma manufacture authenticity mm -hmm. and measure it. And you know, all that they apply their worldview to authenticity, which just ruins it. It's a basic, it's, I think the fundamental difference is, am I serving the customer or am I looking at the customer as someone to serve me? And when you're selling, you're kind of looking at the customer as serving you yeah. because, well, we want their money and they're being piggy about not giving it to us. And so we just need to force them to give it to us yeah. versus, Oh, the customer needs something. Let's give them the thing that they need. That's how you create value. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, you could say a business, I feel like a business, the goal of a business is to create value, not profit is a side effect and it's necessary to keep the business running. But the goal of the business is to create value. Some people say the goal of a business is to create and keep a customer. And it's like, yeah, but you do that by creating value. So I feel like the value argument is more important. Mm -hmm more fundamental. And so if you look at what you're doing and saying, am I creating value for the customer? And you can't say yes to that, then um, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. There's some businesses that are, I think, lucky in that they're a customer to themselves. Mm -hmm. I think this is why GitHub is so good mm. is that GitHub, they use GitHub it, to build GitHub. And so uh, I think a lot of their like product management, like a uh, prioritization of what they work on and, you know, even little bug fixes and stuff are because all the engineers are using GitHub all day, every day. And uh, that's a beneficial position. Heroku is at least partially built on Heroku itself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Heroku has some of that advantage as well. So I think there's some in the technology space, there's some businesses that are lucky in that they are the, a customer to themselves, which can, you know, can distort perspective because maybe you're not, you, you're not a great picture of what the customer, what, you know, the customer that you're trying, that you want to get is or something. But the feedback is built into the system and you can't like say, oh, we're changing management styles or whatever. I mean, that feedback is still there. And in fact, if I have a problem with GitHub, how do I report it? I go and, you know, put in an issue on yeah. GitHub. And it's like, it's, it just kind of flattens that uh, space. You don't have a hierarchy built in and somebody going, you know, I think the company needs to go into this direction. It's like, no, the users tell you. And also it's one product yeah. and I don't know. I think there's a good argument for saying that a company should, what is the reason for a company is it's to create a product and not 
not necessarily to become huge and create many products. Apple is trying to go into the car business now. They haven't created a new product since, uh, I don't know, the iPhone or the iPad or one of the, one of the things. Yeah. Oh, watch was probably the most recent one. Okay. Watch. You see, it's not even on my radar because it's like, I don't need a, I don't need a smart watch. I mean, they have uh, Apple TV, but that's just, they didn't create a new product. Well, they didn't do it for the watch either. You know, they were, there were digital watch, you know, computer watches already. And they're Netflix pioneered the streaming place. Apple's not pioneering that they're not pioneering the car thing, you know? So it's like, I don't know why I got onto that. Oh, well, they're trying to, you know, they're going, Oh, we got to, add more products and keep up Mm. and uh, maybe not. Maybe a company should only be focused on a single product. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Hmm. What, yeah. How, how much should you try to tackle? Mm -hmm. I mean, traditionally it's just, well, we want to make more money. So we buy this company that does this and we buy that company. Well, GitHub got acquired by Microsoft. Yeah. Um, yeah, we um, when I was at TypeSafe, I I intentionally helped them embrace Java more mm-hmm. with Akka and Play Framework, and I think in retrospect it was a mistake mm. because mm. the heart of the company was Scala, mm-hmm. the technology that every engineer cared about was Scala, and so looking at it from the business perspective, it was like, Oh, we need to like get Java developers using our technology so we can grow our business. Seemed, seemed rational, seemed like a good idea, but Java was just never something that the company cared about. And so, yeah, they got, they got Java customers, but the engineers. That's almost more of a burden. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think in some ways it was. The engineers didn't really want to work on the Java stuff. Mm-hmm. They didn't care. Like the engineers are much more interested in getting Java people to use Scala. So in retrospect, I'm like, eh, we probably should have just said we're a Scala company, and Scala is all we care about. And I think that ultimately things would have, um, yeah, maybe, maybe the business wouldn't have grown as well. But I think we probably would have enjoyed would have grown better. Well, I mean, you look at Python. It never was about growing our customer base right. or any of that. It yeah. was about this. This is our jam, man. Python's our jam. That's what we care about. If you don't like it, that's fine. Um, we're going to keep doing it because it works for us. And it never was expected to grow. If your goal is growth, it can lead you astray from what really matters. Whereas if your goal is solving some problem really well, that may lead to growth, but keeps you probably focused on what's most important. And, and if it doesn't lead to growth, but simply a stable company, is that so bad? Right. I mean, unchecked growth is not necessarily, shouldn't necessarily be the goal of, you know, we, we don't necessarily produce great companies by going, well, Growth is the only important thing. You get a GameStop uh, game. Yeah, yeah which is growth. still weird. It's like GameStop is going to die. 
right? I mean, because nobody buys their, nobody goes to a mall to buy their games anymore. So I guess that's why they target it. I, I still don't. I, I never really followed that. But but it's like, here's a company that's clearly going down the tubes. It just, it doesn't serve a need anymore. Unless they reinvent themselves into something else, which does serve a need. But going to the mall to buy a game isn't how we're doing it anymore. Yeah. And they're just taking a cut of the profits from the game developer. So it's not serving any purpose anyway. All right. I um, think we're done. We're done. And we will do some Q and a with the people on, um, on discord.